0: So uh, what I've called this, uh, you know, these are just some, some thoughts that I, 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 I was thinking about and uh, looking at various issues uh, uh, to add to the concept note, which we sent round, which had a number of questions in any case, which we tried to think about in an inclusive way, an interdisciplinary way that might appeal to GR peers, as it were. Um, so I've called it Do Rights Matter for agenda Justice Everywhere and Nowhere, um, and that is really to reflect, I think, on the fact that um, the first will this work is that the second year. Yes, oh. good lord. Um, the World Development Report, the World Bank Report, two thousand and twelve. Some of you will know, was entitled Gender Equality and Development. Uh, it was about four hundred and fifty pages long, um, and it's a good read. Um, uh, it is a good read, actually. But, uh, but just to quote from the start here of what they say, they say. Uh, There's been a lot of change for the better in relation to gender justice and at a pace that would have been unthinkable even two decades ago. So it's success. Um, Women have made unprecedented gains in rights. So that's their first understanding. And then in education and health and in access to jobs and livelihoods. And then go on to say that in 136 countries, we now have explicit guarantees of the equality of all citizens and non-discrimination between men and women in constitutions. So this is about the idea that rights matter and one gets it framed within state mechanisms. So very much a stress that, as we would we would see from the women's human rights movement from the 1970s onwards, there has been a you know there's been a significant movement and significant development of the concepts of rights in relation to women and in relation to gender. But does it make a difference? So the bank says it's not come easily, this improvement. And it's not come evenly to all countries or to all women or across all dimensions of de- uh, gender equality. So as they point out, you're more likely to die in sub-Saharan Africa now than you would have died in the 19th century in Northern Europe. They list the sort of areas where there are still, as far as they can see, major deficits when it comes to the implementation of gender justice. Um, we will be familiar with those. Divorce and widowhood causes many women uh, women to become landless, lose their assets. Uh, women are clustered into low-paying occupations, even though forty-three percent of the world's women are now engaged in the labour market. They're more likely to be victims of violence at home, and they're still severely di- uh, women are still severely underrepresented in politics and senior managerial positions in terms of leadership uh, across the world. So rights have been achieved 136 constitutions have got all uh, uh, formality but have they made a difference well there's been a lot of discussion and again when i was getting ready to come in this morning walking in this morning start the week was on the issue of gender and rights and i thought oh god you know wouldn't it be that i'm thinking about that so uh, there's a lot of issues about the role and human rights at the moment and its ability, this concept of human rights to bring about change. Um, And a lot of uh, debate and thinking uh, across a number of different areas. And so I thought I would just pick out some that I've been reading relatively randomly. One around some sort of theoretical ideas um, that have emerged. And one of these sort of arises from Joseph Raz. And this is the idea of what... Uh, Susan Marks at LSE calls reckless activism. Um, is the hu- has the human rights movement been uh, uh, reckless in the way in which it has developed? In other words, the argument has been that he would argue there's no presumptive universalism. We're all very familiar with this idea of whether human rights are universal or not. His argument is that, I should put the slide on, I forget because it's behind me, sorry. Um, Rights uh, are there because of the things that we value. The things that are valued are the things that we want to have universal value. So it's because of the things we want, food, shelter, security. These are the things that we value and this is why we would want to assert human rights. But the argument is made that, oh, oh, very well, we're asserting these rights across a range of areas, a right to food, a right to this, a right to water. But do they materialise to do the job is one of the arguments. So it's easy to argue for them, but actually do they materialise to do the job? Um, In other words, if, if one is being slightly lawyerish about this, you need a duty on the part of an entity of some sort to secure, and it's traditionally the state that has done that. And then it relates to issues about to what extent are they enforceable and leads to process difficulties. One of the problems with this is that this idea that we can assert these values because we all share in an understanding is that actually there is no global commitment to the value of human life and the ranges of issues that go into making a human life so although that's asserted um, and the uh, the argument is that the bar is too low perhaps we need to limit our claims and not disperse them Uh, In fact, the the fundamental one has not yet been achieved. And then I looked at, well, I thought, well, uh, is there an example of this? And if we look at a report from the uh, special rapporteur (laughs) on extreme poverty and human rights, and this, the issue which is very much on the agenda at the moment is the issue of unpaid care work, social care, care generally is very much an issue that seems to be attracting attention at the moment. So this report starts this report written this year starts with unpaid care work is a major human rights issue. So the way we're understanding unpaid care is asserted from the outset as to be a major human rights issue. So and then of course it goes on to say you know women are the caregivers and so on. So any Clearly, does. It says, failures of states to pr- adequately provide, fund, and support and regulate care contradicts human rights. So, this is an assertion that unpaid care constitutes something that should be a human right. But, you know, where's that come from? This is a new uh, uh, iteration. So, perhaps an example of, of that idea of the, uh, asserting, but how do they materialize mm-hmm. given the context? Okay. Uh, Another quick example of the same thing uh, within the NGO community, action aid, again, drawing on this idea of making care visible. Women's responsibility for care leads to a violation of their basic human rights, attaching it to this idea of the discourse. Um, So look around, see what rights you can do, and then try and make care fit in it and extend to it. So perhaps that is uh, one understanding. Another understanding of reckless activism is um, by uh, another uh, uh, commentator, which talks about, well, hang on a moment. The idea that this has got this long history of rights uh, from the 1790s, no, perhaps as we understand it now, it's about the 1970s. This is when, particularly in relation to women's rights, the whole movement around women's rights emerged. And the argument here is that actually, it's a last utopia. It's with the dying of, of other political utopias, it's a, it's a substitute, an anti-political substitute, for the loss of those political struggles, particularly around communism and totalitarianism. So it's a moral alternative to bankrupt political utopias starting at that stage. And as it started out, the human rights movement was a smaller, and I put smaller in brackets, because it was directed towards particular types of violations, repression <coughs> and self-violence. And in that argument, manageable. You know your target. You know your Amnesty International. You know what you're doing. Um, and you have a group of people that you are defending and so on. In the, um, but it spread. Now to tackle issues across all forms of suffering. So human rights, in a sense, this new utopia has now maximalist, not minimalist, and inevitably that means that the morality has to engage with the politics of, of everyday life and the state and into programmes. And the argument here is that uh, human rights are overinflated. You know, they're, they're everywhere. Um, so just to give an example of this quickly, law Justice and development uh, online discussion from the World Bank just recently um, in November about health systems the argument is Would changes that adopt a rights-based approach bring about a better health system in a country how would different health systems function if they were rights-based so again this idea of engagement uh, to use rights in this way briefly and finally we have a third uh, uh, narrative around human rights, uh, which I'm calling the sort of Nancy Fraser, Naomi Klein, and Wendy Brown sort of approach, which, hang on a moment, you know this 1970s utopia, this last utopia, have we forgotten something here? This was a period of neoliberal version of private capitalism, privatization, deregulation, state retreat from social provision. So we're seeing human rights emerging at that time, supported by this non-political human rights the argument. No, it's not, a, it's not chance that the human rights movement appears at this time. And under this argument, um, there has been an unintentional but fellow traveling between feminism, that's the Nancy Fraser argument, and the women's rights movement, and I might add the development discourse, that others would say. So, you know, what is it that means you get a rise of this type of arrangement just at a time when we're moving into a particular withdrawal of the state from areas? Um, And then Wendy Brown, just to continue with Wendy Brown, finally, um, you know, the other two arguments about human rights is that human rights are them are in fact themselves significant forms of power um, that they embody an anti-political form of subjectivity the subjects of human rights are not participating in collective projects but yearning to, and this is her phraseology yearning to be free of politics and collective determinations of ends so it's a different construction um, so it, the argument here is that actually rights ratify social and systematic constraints And there is always an unresolved gap, therefore, between discourse and the promise of empowerment. They never deliver. They cannot deliver. And here I would use, and this might be a bit controversial, the ILO has just recently had this uh, Convention 189 on domestic workers' convention. Major campaigns to include domestic workers within the concept of work, to give them human rights, to address the abuses of human rights. So it's a combination here of saying, we understand domestic work because we can attach human rights to their work as workers. So they could become workers because they've got human rights. (coughs) And just finally, then it leads me to think as an example about work in contemporary capitalism because this is another area where we see major uh, changes in the way in which we organize the global economy, uh, which itself is a sort of um, uh, a euphemism for a particular form of capitalism. Um, <coughs> and so you might say the way human rights are, are at the moment constructed is that it's a misfortune if you, uh, uh, you suffer a violation of human rights, rather than it being systematically produced and reproduced, a system systematically re- produces and reproduces. And we see that, I think, well, perhaps we could apply that to this whole idea of workers, you know, workers now are entrepreneurs. They're service workers. They're migrant uh, uh, people. They're not employees who attract rights through employment anymore. There's been a massive withdrawal, a problem with protections that are collective in nature, that have been b- born on the back of collective struggle. So we have traffic bodies, modern slaves, but not migrant workers. That's the whole debate that we see. And the argument is there is indignity and unfreedom in plain sight. You know, we, actually, uh, we internalise the unfreedoms that are associated with uh, the issues about gender relations and human rights more broadly. So really just some ideas about the way in which recently I've seen debates re- mo- rethinking or reiterating debates around human rights and their application to gender so you know they're everywhere but possibly they're nowhere but I don't know what other people think yeah. mm-hmm. wow. you don't mm-hmm. have to <laughs>